Thanks for tuning in. I'm Renee. And I'm Shelby. And this is a part two. Ooh, of the creepy burrito. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people with their lives have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. Not only we're in a compound situation, not only are there those who have left and committed the betrayal of the century, some have stolen children from others and they're in pursuit right now to kill them because they stole their children. And we, we are sitting here waiting on a powder keg. I don't think this is what we want to do with our babies. I don't think that's what we had in mind to do with our babies. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial, no man lay, takes my life from me, I lay my life down. So to, to sit here and wait for the catastrophe that's going to happen on that airplane, it's going to be a catastrophe. Almost happened here. Almost happened. The congressman was nearly killed here. But you can't steal people's children. You can't take off with people's children without expecting a violent reaction. And that's not so unfamiliar to us either, if we, even if we were Judeo-Christian, if we weren't communists. The world, the kingdom, suffers violence, and the violence shall take it by force. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. November 18th, 1978. On this day, exactly 42 years ago, Jim Jones sat down to make a recording of the mass suicide and murder of over 900 members of his cult. Some of that recording you just heard. Now, I'm going to warn you because this episode today is going to be pretty heavy. So hopefully you're wearing your stretchy pants because this big old burrito is going to be full of saucy sadness. Oh no. Mm Mm-hmm. You're going to probably want to purge after this episode. (laughs) Not good. But uh, buckle in, because it's going to be a journey. So in our last episode, I left off with a magazine article that was going to bring to light the true horrors and expose Jim Jones for the charlatan that he was. But by the time that news article hit the stands, Jim was already gone. Guyana is a country in South America surrounded by dense rainforest and crawling with beautiful exotic animals. The Guyanese Cooperative Republic is a socialist country and the only South American nation in which English is the official language. For Jim, who had passed through 
on his return from Brazil in 1963, it was the ideal haven to relocate People's Temple to. Jim Jones had started building his safe haven in Guyana several years before the New West article was even published. Back in 1974, the Guyana government leased 1,500 hectares, or 3,800 acres, of land to People's Temple. In March of 1974, the first People's Temple members arrived in Guyana after a 10-day trip to begin the mammoth task of preparing the land for the construction of what was to become People's Temple Agricultural Project, or informally known as Jonestown. These 15 people were tasked with clearing the jungle by themselves with only axes, cutlasses, and machetes. Shortly after, foundations were built and fields were created for future crops. A year later, in 1975, there were a total of 50 People's Temple pioneers in Guyana who worked day and night, rain or shine, to construct buildings and establish their promised land. Most of these people had no farming or construction experience, but they did their best. There were people who would go out and tend to the livestock or crops, others would lay down more foundations for buildings, while others went to make furniture. Although it was hard work, life for these early Jonestown settlers was quite happy. Breakfast typically consisted of eggs and biscuits with pastries and coffee, while dinner was usually fried chicken and peanut butter fudge for dessert. After dinner, they would gather for games, music and dancing, and movies. There was much promise and hope that this would be their utopia. By May of 1976, there were approximately 100 members of People's Temple living in Jonestown. Migration there from the U.S. was rather slow because it was quite a process. People would need to get their passports and immunizations. Homes would need to be sold, jobs quit, and bank accounts closed. However, it was a nice pace for people already living within the commune. It gave them plenty of time to prepare for newcomers. By April of 1977, a total of 400 members had moved and Jonestown had grown exponentially. They had their own doctor's office, pharmacy, and hospital. They had a decently equipped kitchen and a bakery and reserved a space for communal eating. There was a laundry, sawmill, warehouse, supply storage, and fuel tank. There was a library and educational tents for the children and also a playground and basketball court. They had facilities for showering and bathing and also a pit dug for toilets. There was a section of Jonestown called West House, and this is where People's Temple senior staff stayed. West House was a series of cottages that were, of course, much larger than the cottages the rest of the members resided in. In the center of the commune was a large pavilion where gatherings were held, and next to that was a radio room where they would communicate positive updates about their progress back to People's Temple headquarters in San Francisco. When Jim Jones visited the commune to check on the progress, he brought his PR team to film and edit a video showing the amazing progress of the commune and how great the living conditions were. And then he brought that video back to the members still living in America to show them what to look forward to. He recorded the large fields of fruits and vegetables. The video showed close-ups of plentiful meals full of beef, pork, and chicken. The video showed insides of what temple members' cottages would look like, and it was quite spacious. Like most things Jim Jones told his followers, this video was far from truthful. He didn't say in the video that the livestock was rapidly dying of a mysterious disease, and that most crops failed due to unpredictable weather. He didn't warn people that the cottages were becoming vastly overcrowded because they were not being built as fast as the people were coming in. The members who lived in Jonestown were unaware of the negative publicity People's Temple and Jim Jones were receiving, 
so they were vastly unprepared for the major evacuation that was about to take place. Jim Jones knew that when the article hit the newsstand, there would be repercussions. He would eventually end up being investigated and could potentially face criminal charges. The New West Magazine article even accused Jim and People's Temple of planning a major evacuation, pointing out that properties both in Redwood Valley and Los Angeles, as well as three care homes that People's Temple owned, were all up for sale. People's Temple quickly released statements denying that they were fleeing America, even though that was exactly what they were doing. Shortly after Jim's departure, his staff had told Temple members that Father had called them home to the Promised Land, so people quit their jobs, packed up their belongings, and began their exodus to Guyana. To avoid suspicions, members told their friends and families that they were just going on one of the Temple's routine cross-country bus tours, and to dodge any media attention, the busloads of hundreds of members were split between airports across the country. By September of 1977, there were more than a thousand People's Temple members in Guyana. At first, Temple members were excited to get to Jonestown. They had watched the videos and heard the positive reports of the commune for years. However, upon their arrival, they were sorely disappointed. The promised land was anything but. Members were told that there would be a cottage for each family, but there wasn't. Men and women stayed in separate cottages, while their children were taken to live in the nursery and were only allowed to see their parents briefly at night. Residential cottages had no air conditioning and were suffocatingly hot under the South American sun. The cottages were designed to hold only four people, but were crammed with double and triple bunk beds to house 10 to 20 people instead. Some cottages didn't even have window screens or doors. Upon arrival, all members' possessions were confiscated, including their passports. Members didn't think much of this because they thought that they would only be staying in Guyana temporarily, that eventually they would be returning back to America once things calmed down. But they didn't know about the confidential order from Jim Jones that no one was permitted to leave. Jim's reputation in the States was destroyed, and he could never return, and he wouldn't let anyone else either. This trip was final. New members weren't the only ones disappointed upon arrival. Jonestown pioneers were also disheartened. Jonestown could barely support the 400 members that they had and almost overnight acquired 500 more residents. The task of feeding, housing, and clothing the entire community was a massive undertaking. When Jim moved into town, there was no more music, there was no more dancing, and people were far more on edge. The entertaining movies that early settlers had watched were replaced with Soviet propaganda films and documentaries on American social problems. Soon, the delicious meals the Jonestown pioneers once had turned into meals consisting of only rice and gravy. Long gone were the days of pastries and peanut butter fudge. As regular Temple members suffered, Jim Jones lived comfortably in his two-story cottage with his mistresses. He had air conditioning, a typewriter, a radio, a full bed, and his cottage had all its window screens and doors. He also had a refrigerator filled with his favorite snacks and drinks. Instead of the daily meals of rice and gravy Temple members received, Jim enjoyed meals of meat, salad, jelly, and coffee. Temple staff determined job placement. However, most new members were made to go to work in the fields. Typically, residents were woken up for work every day by 6 a.m., but sometimes would be woken up as early as 3 a.m. Temple members worked six days a week from approximately 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. with only one hour break for lunch. 
And after the day's work ended, temple members would attend several hours of activities in a pavilion, including classes in socialism. Jim compared this schedule to the North Korean system of eight hours of daily work followed by eight hours of study. Jim allowed for members to send letters back home under the condition that they were written in front of one of his loyal aides. Letters would be filled with lies about how happy temple members were and what great things were happening in Jonestown. All incoming mail would be intercepted and confiscated. Jonestown received hundreds of letters from concerned and worried friends and family of temple members. Some even included money for flights back home. But none of these letters would ever make it to the person that it was intended for. When members started questioning why they weren't receiving any mail, Jim Jones blamed the U.S. government, and when that excuse started getting old, he simply told them their loved ones stopped writing to them. Jim Jones mostly stayed inside of his air-conditioned cottage. His paranoia heightened after the media scandal, and he was convinced that ex-Temple members, the U.S. government, and the CIA were all eventually coming to get him and destroy his socialist Eden. So what does the paranoid drug addict Jim Jones do? Only further spiral into his addiction. During meetings, Jim would drink and would frantically ramble on for hours about his enemies. His speech would become slurred, and he would stutter. His ramblings would last for hours, while he would burp, urinate, and vomit without any shame. He would become vulgar and swear at people and even get aggressive. And to make matters worse, only four months after moving to Jonestown, Jim's mother, Lynetta, suffered a stroke and passed away, even further fueling Jim's addiction and his newfound obsession with death. Jim had a loudspeaker installed throughout Jonestown, and he would use this to further psychologically manipulate People's Temple members. Every day, he would ramble on about fascist America and his enemies. He would even make up false news stories about what was going on back home in America, such as large-scale race riots, mass murders of minorities, and the reintroduction of slavery. Things like television and radio were strictly prohibited for regular residents of Jonestown, so these poor people literally had no idea that this wasn't even happening. Jonestown survivor Deborah Layton said, Only Jim spoke on the speaker system. It went 24 hours a day, and he would tape himself, so in the middle of the night, all through the night, his voice was talking to you. The residents of Jonestown were also quizzed daily about the content of what Jim would speak on the loudspeaker. If you failed, then it was assumed that you weren't listening, and you were forbidden to talk to others, and were made to work twice as hard. Just like back in America, catharsis continued, and Jim Jones would still deal out the punishments. But they became increasingly more cruel. Some troublemakers were locked in what was called the box, which was a six by four by three foot plywood box that was dug into the ground. Other times, troublemakers would be assigned to the learning crew, which was designated to take care of the low status, undesirable tasks. More rebellious troublemakers were placed into the extended care unit where they were restrained and sedated with drugs. Jim would have his aides keep tab on the residents of the commune and report back to him. Unfortunately for Jim, the findings of his aides brought back nothing but negativity. The residents weren't happy. They missed America. However, with minor infractions landing you in a position like the learning crew, most people didn't try to protest or defy Jim Jones, and an escape seemed pretty much impossible. Until one morning, Guyanese police were approached by a man who looked like he had been walking around in the jungle for days. He had told them that his name was Leon Brassad, and he lived within Jonestown, which was a slave colony. When Guyanese police came to investigate, Jim Jones accused Leon of being a drug addict and a liar. After some pressing by the police, 
Jim agreed to return Leon's passport and even offered to pay for his return flight home. Leon Bersad had successfully escaped, but those who he left behind suffered his consequences. Jim Jones became more paranoid, more controlling, and dealt out even more punishments. Residents were yet again encouraged to spy on one another and were rewarded for doing so. Siblings, spouses, children, and parents would all turn each other in. Residents confessed to infractions and would turn themselves in before anyone else could in hopes to receive a lesser punishment. Life in Jonestown was tense. People were unhappy and people were starting to become sick. Diarrhea, rashes, dehydration, and intestinal worms were all too common in Jonestown. When residents weren't feeling well, they went to visit Larry Shart, the Jonestown doctor, or if you could even call him that. Larry was an intern at San Francisco General Hospital and only in his fifth week of internship before the evacuation from America to Guyana. He was inexperienced and unfamiliar with treating simple medical issues. Wounds would fester and infections would spread. He didn't even know how to set broken bones. He was also recorded as being wildly inappropriate and would perform prostate exams on male temple members who didn't need or require one. He was a bit of a loner and was addicted to crystal meth prior to joining People's Temple. Larry was emotionally unstable, and being the only doctor in Jonestown responsible for over a thousand people and working upwards of 16 hours a day only further unhinged the man. People in Jonestown reported seeing Larry often muttering to himself, shaking, looking sick, and taking large doses of the drug Thorazine. People reasoned that this was because of the stress of being the only doctor in town, which was true. But he not only started taking Thorazine to help calm his nerves about his work, but also to help him cope with something much darker. Jim Jones had requested that Larry work on a discreet project for him to find the easiest way to carry out a mass suicide. One night, a gunman from the forest fired off a few rounds at Jim's cottage, and Jim immediately ran to the loudspeaker saying, alert, alert, we're under attack. Frantically, People's Temple members ran to the pavilion where Jim Jones was already waiting for them. He advised the residents that fascist mercenaries had them surrounded and that they were going to infiltrate Jonestown, kidnap their children, and kill the rest. Church staff handed out farming tools to residents to be used as weapons and then made them line up facing the jungle and told them that they were to defend Jonestown or die trying. Residents were made to stand guard and watch the jungle all night. They were permitted to sleep, but only in short shifts. When morning came, they were allowed to work to keep Jonestown running, but when night came again, they were to stand guard and watch the jungle. This went on for six days before finally Jim Jones allowed his makeshift army to stand down. Residents were relieved that they had survived and did not have to fight, but what they didn't know was they weren't in any real danger. Jim Jones had orchestrated the entire attack by ordering his son, Jim Jones Jr., to walk into the woods and fire at his cottage. This was the first of many drills or tests that Jim would put his commune through. He believed that they should be ready to die for Jonestown. Revolutionary suicide. Jim started importing guns into Jonestown, hidden in crates labeled agricultural supplies. In total, he was able to smuggle about 30 firearms and he would refer to these guns as Bibles and would make statements like, there are enough Bibles here to do a lot of praying if necessary. Around May of 1978, Larry Sharp believed that he had found the answer to Jim Jones' mass suicide request, cyanide poisoning. 
Cyanide is a rapidly acting, potentially deadly chemical that can stop body cells from absorbing oxygen. When this happens, the cells die, which causes the sensation of suffocation. And depending on the dosage, cyanide poisoning could take up to three hours or only minutes to kill. Early symptoms include headaches, dizziness, fast heart rate, shortness of breath, and vomiting. This then may be followed by seizures, slow heart rate, low blood pressure, loss of consciousness, and cardiac arrest. Shortly after, Jim Jones called a town meeting at the pavilion and residents were surprised to see guards holding guns. Vernon Gosney, another Jonestown survivor, recounted, There were people that I knew for years with guns, and they weren't pointed outward. They were pointed inward. It was a sense of an armed encampment. Jim went on his normal rants about how, back in America, things were chaos. He would tell people African Americans were being herded into concentration camps, and that people committing these acts of genocide were on their way to torture and kill the residents of Jonestown, since they had chose the socialist track. He said to everyone that the only option they had was to commit mass suicide, because if they were taken alive, they would wish they were dead. At this point, church staff members brought forward paper cups and placed them on a table next to a large tank that was filled with a dark liquid. Jim addressed his people, line up, drink the liquid. It would be painless. In 45 minutes, you'd fall asleep forever. The crowd began to protest, but they were forced to line up by the armed guards. Jim told them that if anyone tried to run, they would be shot. Each person was given a cup and forced to drink at gunpoint, even children. If anyone refused to drink, they were held down, mouth forced open, and the drink poured down their throat. Most people drank willingly, being so brainwashed that they welcomed death as an alternative to what was coming for them. They were then forced out to the field by gunpoint and made to lay down and wait to die. They held hands, comforted one another, and whispered their goodbyes. Some people cried while watching the sunset. Others closed their eyes and tried to fall asleep forever, but were suddenly interrupted by Jim Jones yelling, You didn't take anything. You only had punch, with something a little stronger in it. This, yet again, was another one of Jim's drills, or loyalty tests. Jim conducted this exact same suicide simulation very frequently. It became known as White Knight. Every few weeks, Jim would run to the loudspeaker and yell, White Knight, White Knight, get to the pavilion, your lives are in danger. Residents would run to the pavilion and be forced to partake in a simulation where they either needed to defend the commune or rally for their leader. But each white night would always end the same. Everyone would be made to line up, take a cup, and drink their poison drink, and then die. At the end of each simulation, Jim Jones would laugh and tell them that it was only a test to prove to him who he could trust. These white nights became so frequent that people stopped fighting back. People were too physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted to try and resist. Each resident would line up, take a cup, and drink willingly. They knew it was only one of Jim Jones's loyalty tests, and there was no more fear. However, this is exactly what Jim wanted. By performing these white nights over and over again, it conditioned his residents to no longer have any fear. So that way, when the moment came that a white knight was real, he would be met with little to no resistance. At one point, officials from the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown, Guyana's capital, visited Jonestown to interview Social Security recipients to make sure that they weren't being held against their will. 
But Jim Jones and his staff would spend days preparing the commune to make it seem like the picture-perfect township. Residents would be directed as to what to say and rehearse answers approved by Jim and the church staff. Large quantities of food would be imported in, and anyone who looked too sick or too thin were given larger portions of food to try to fatten them up. When the U.S. government officials finally visited, none of the 75 people interviewed by the embassy stated that they were being held captive, forced to sign over their welfare checks, or wanted to leave Jonestown. There didn't appear to be any signs of trouble. But back in America, concerned family and friends of Jonestown residents and ex-Temple members refused to believe the positive reports coming back from Jonestown, and they formed the Concerned Relatives Group. Tim Stone, who was an ex-Temple member in the Concerned Relatives Group, traveled to Washington, D.C. to visit with State Department officials and members of Congress to discuss his grievances against Jim Jones and the Temple. The Concerned Relatives also began a legal battle with the Temple over the custody of Tim Stone's son, John, which then triggered other defectors who had left their children behind to also sue for custody. The Concerned Relatives also distributed a pack of documents, letters, and affidavits to the People's Temple, members of the press, and members of Congress, which they titled, An Accusation of Human Rights Violations by Reverend Jim Warren Jones. In June of 1978, escaped Temple member Deborah Layton provided the group with a further affidavit detailing the rehearsals of mass suicide, brainwashing, forced labor, and sleep deprivation. Together, they claimed that Jonestown was nothing more than a concentration camp, with armed guards constantly patrolling. The efforts by the Concerned Relatives Group aroused the curiosity of California Congressman Leo Ryan. Congressman Ryan was a hands-on activist who carried a strong sense of responsibility to personally help the overlooked, less fortunate, and poorly treated people in society. He wasn't the type to just sit around behind his desk. He really wanted to make a difference and help those who were unable to help themselves. He was determined to lead a fact-finding mission to Jonestown in order to investigate the allegations of human rights abuses and to find out firsthand what was going on there, stating that he would stay in Jonestown for as long as it took, with or without Jim Jones's permission. Jim, of course, brainwashed Temple members to believing that Congressman Ryan was coming to smear their name and to destroy their church. Jim even wrote a letter to the Guyanese government asking them to refuse Congressman Ryan access into the country at all, but his letter was unsuccessful. So, with a group of concerned relatives, an NBC camera crew, and reporters for various newspapers in tow, Congressman Ryan flew to the Guyanese capital of Georgetown on November 15, 1979, and two days later flew to the airstrip of Katuma and was escorted by limousine into the jungle towards Jonestown. Jim was worried that when the group arrived, some of his residents would try to escape. So, of course, church staff had been preparing temple members for the congressman's visit for weeks. Role plays were conducted in which members were told exactly what to say when spoken to by reporters, and were told any signs of dissatisfaction would be harshly dealt with away from prying eyes. Every member knew that the guards were watching their every move, so attempts to escape were futile. 20 members of People's Temple, who were deemed the most rebellious, were ordered by Jim Jones to be sedated in the extended care unit during Congressman Ryan's visit. Jim told members, as far as your relatives coming up to talk to you, be civil, but don't get engaged into long conversations with them. Tell them how happy you are. Tell them what your food is, how much food, 
that you wouldn't go back to the United States if someone were to give you a ticket tomorrow. The congressman and his group were warmly welcomed upon their arrival by Marceline Jones. She was designated to be their tour guide while they were staying in Jonestown. Congressman Ryan seemed genuinely impressed with the organization and the order that he saw. The place didn't look like a prison. There was a group of girls practicing a dance routine, a group of boys playing basketball, and children crowded around watching television. There were hundreds of people milling about the place, but there were no barbed wire fences, no watchtowers, no guards with guns. It appeared that people were free to come and go as they pleased. Marceline escorted the congressman and his group to the Central Pavilion in Jonestown, where Jim Jones had planned a grand reception to welcome them. Jim Jones warmly greeted his guests and sat down with them to enjoy a dinner of barbecue pork, biscuits, greens, and coffee. The reporters had their cameras rolling, and Jim Jones would speak candidly to them. When asked about his threats of mass suicide, Jim said, I only said that we rather commit suicide than kill. This is when reporters started to notice Jim stuttering and slurring while he went about explaining the conspiracies against his commune. They believed that he was high on drugs, which, of course, they were correct. Out of the group of concerned relatives that came with Congressman Ryan, only four were permitted inside of Jonestown. And when they were finally able to reconnect with their loved ones, it wasn't the reunion that they were hoping for. Their relatives were standoffish, gave evasive answers, and even accused their own family members of coming to Jonestown to destroy the church. During dinner, Congressman Ryan interviewed multiple residents and would discreetly show them a card, instructing them to nod if they wanted to leave, but each person he interviewed never nodded. After dinner, the Jonestown community put on a show for their guests, which consisted of singing songs, dancing, and a comedy show. People were having fun, they were laughing and smiling. Afterwards, Marceline took to the stage to introduce Congressman Ryan for his speech. He got up on stage and said to the crowd, I'm very glad to be here. I think all of you know that I'm here to find out more about the questions that have been raised about your operation here. And I can tell you right now that a few conversations that I had with some of the folks here already this evening, that whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe that this is the best thing that ever happened in their whole lives. It's really a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the hospitality you've shown me already. My work here is important to me. I know it's very important to you too. I hope to be through here tomorrow sometime. In the meantime, you're obviously having a good time tonight. I don't want to spoil any more with political speeches. Just let me say thank you on behalf of my staff, on behalf of the press who are here, and behalf of the relatives who are in here now for hosting us this evening. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. During the speech, resident Vernon Gosney approached NBC reporter Don Harris and slipped a folded up piece of paper under his arm. When the note fell to the floor, Vernon quickly picked up the paper and handed it back to Don and said, you've dropped something. Don was confused, but quickly took the paper from Vernon. The crowd erupted in applause after Congressman Ryan's speech. Don Harris approached the congressman later that evening with the note. When the congressman was safely away from Jim Jones, he opened the paper and quickly read the scribbled note that said, Dear Congressman, please help us get out of Jonestown. The next morning, on November 18th, Don Harris and Congressman Ryan confronted Jim Jones about the note, to which he declared that anyone was free to come and go as they pleased. 
After rumors spread that a resident approached Congressman Ryan for help with leaving, Edith Parks, an elderly temple member who had been with the church since the 1950s, and her family of seven also approached the congressman and told them they wanted to leave as well. Jim Jones approached Edith and her family, begging them to stay, and offered them their passports back and even $5,000 if they would just stay for a few more weeks. But Edith and her family figured this was a trap and knew all too well what would happen to them now if they did decide to stick around after the congressman and his crew left. One of Park's family members even yelled at Jim and said, you held us here as slaves. Now we're getting out. This prompted Congressman Ryan to make a public declaration that anyone who wanted to leave with him at the end of the weekend was most welcome. Within hours, a dozen more people came forward insisting that they wanted to leave. And by 3 p.m., a total of 14 people were collecting whatever sparse belongings they had to leave the commune that day with Congressman Ryan. The congressman, on the other hand, decided to stay in Jonestown one more night to conduct more interviews and to make certain he wasn't leaving anyone behind that wanted to leave. Vernon Gosney approached the congressman, warning him of the danger that he was in if he stayed another night. Congressman Ryan assured Vernon that he would be okay, that the U.S. Congressional Shield protected him from any harm. Even in the days leading up to his visit, the congressman was warned on more than one occasion about the violence that he may encounter in Jonestown. But he refused to be influenced or intimidated by fear. However, later that day, People's Temple member Don Sly slowly walked up behind the congressman, grabbed him by the neck, and held a knife to his throat. Through tears, he told the congressman, Motherfucker, you're going to die. The congressman struggled with his attacker before finally a group of people were able to pull Don off him and forced him to the ground. Congressman Ryan approached Jim Jones and asked him to have Don Sly arrested for his actions. Jim Jones barely reacted to the news of the attack and said to the congressman, does this change things? Congressman Ryan, of course, assured Jim that this wasn't going to influence his findings. However, at this point, he knew that there was something more sinister underneath the surface of Jonestown. And in taking Vernon Gosney's advice, he decided against staying another day. He immediately gathered up his belongings and walked to the truck that contained the defectors and his crew. They started up the trucks and began to pull away when another defector ran towards the group. His name was Larry Layton and he insisted that he wanted to leave as well. The group of defectors urged Congressman Ryan not to allow Larry to come with them, and that he might be a spy sent by Jim Jones. The reporters also had their own suspicions, since Larry was a very passionate advocate for Jim Jones just earlier that morning. But Congressman Ryan couldn't deny passage to anyone who said that they wanted to leave. So he let Larry, wearing a very suspicious poncho, climb aboard, and the group made their way to the Katuma airstrip. Between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m., the group arrived at the airstrip and waited for the planes. While they were waiting, one cameraman decided to continue filming. Around 5.10, the first of two planes arrived to pick them up, followed by the second one a few moments later. While the group was loading up their belongings, it became evident that there wasn't enough room on the planes for all 30 people. Jonestown defectors were granted priority, as were the government officials and the staff. So the journalists and the news reporters had to fight over who got the remaining seats and who would be left to fly out the following day. As the group debated, a red truck emerged from the jungle and parked alongside the airstrip not too far away from the planes. A few men, known as Jim Jones's bodyguards, called the Red Brigade, stepped out of the truck. 
At this point, Larry Layton, who had been sitting off by himself alone on the side of the runway, approached the group and insisted that he be seated on the first plane with the rest of the defectors. Congressman Ryan agreed, but still feeling a little paranoid, had Larry patted down to make sure he wasn't carrying any weapons. After finding nothing on Larry, he was granted access to the plane. At 5.20 p.m., the plane engines came to life, and on cue, the red truck sped towards the planes, stopping only 30 feet away, and began to open fire on them with their submachine guns. Panic overcame the group. The people inside of the planes attempted to close the metal doors to stop the bullets from entering. Some people on the airstrip ran into the jungle to avoid the gunmen. The rest ducked for cover and hid behind the wheels of the plane. At this point, Larry Layton stood up and removed the 38 revolver he had hidden under his poncho and fired it three times at the passengers seated around him. Some passengers opened the door to escape the plane, while a few others wrestled Larry for the gun and punched him in the face. The pilot of the second plane was able to take off, leaving the others behind. NBC cameraman Bob Brown still had his camera recording during the ambush. He was able to film the gunman getting out of the truck and opening fire before he himself was shot in the leg, fell to the ground, and shattered his camera. San Francisco Examiner reporter Tim Ritterman was one of the lucky ones who was able to make it into the jungle, away from the gunfire. He later stated, The gunfire died down, and there were several deliberate shots over the space of maybe a half a minute, and then there was silence. The gunfire lasted maybe a total of five minutes. Congressman Ryan and four others were killed, including NBC reporter Don Harris, NBC cameraman Bob Brown, San Francisco Examiner photographer Greg Robinson, and Temple member Patricia Parks. After the shooting, the guards immediately made their way back to Jonestown. Back at Jonestown, Jim Jones had initiated a white night, and everyone was gathered at the pavilion. He grabbed a microphone and clicked on a tape recorder to record what would become known as the death tape and began talking. We've been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed. But we tried, and as Jack Beam often said, I don't know where he's at right this moment, where's Jack? He said, if this only worked one day, it was worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to happen here in a matter of a few minutes is that one of those people on that plane is going to, going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot, and down comes that plane into the jungle. And we had better not have any of our children left when it's over, because they'll parachute in here on us. I'm telling you just as plain as I know how to tell you, I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. I know that's what's going to happen. That's what he intends to do. And he will do it. He'll do it. Fortunately, being so bewildered with many, many pressures on my brain, seeing all these people behave so treasonous, it was just too much for me to put together. But uh, uh, I now know what he was telling me, and it'll happen. If the plane gets in the air, even. So my opinion is that we be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. We can't go back. They won't leave us alone. They're now going back to tell more lies, which means more congressmen. 
and there's no way, no way we can survive. Hmm? I haven't seen anybody yet didn't die. And I like to choose my own kind of death for a change. I'm tired of being tormented to hell. That's what I'm tired of. Tired of it. Throwing the people's lives in my hands, and I certainly don't want your life in my hand. But I'm going to tell you, Christine, without me, life has no meaning. I'm the best friend you'll ever have. Once I have to pay, I'm standing with you, Jara. I'm standing with those people. They're part of me. I can detach myself. My attorney says detach myself. No, 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 no. I never detached myself from any of your troubles. I've always taken your troubles right on my shoulders. And I'm not going to change that now. It's too late. I've been running too long. Not going to change now. Jim Jones said the Americans were now certain to send in armed forces to annihilate People's Temple, that they would torture their children, rape their women, and brutalize their elderly that the Soviet Union, with whom he had been negotiating a potential exodus for months, would no longer take them after the airstrip murders. The only dignified response was to commit revolutionary suicide. Jim offered anyone with a differing opinion to speak up. Everyone remained silent, except for Temple member Christine Miller. She said, as long as there is life left, there is hope. That's my faith. The crowd heckled her, and one woman even made fun of her for being afraid to die. But Christine argued for the sake of Jonestown's babies, and even asked Jim Jones if he wanted to see John die. John, being Tim Stone's son, who Jim Jones claimed he was the biological father of, and kidnapped him and took him to Guyana. Jones replied, Do you actually think I would put John's life above others? He's not different to me than any of these children here. One of the guards from the Red Brigade then approached Jim Jones. It's all over, all over. What a legacy, what a legacy. But the Red Brigade's the only ones ever made any sense anyway. They invaded our privacy, they came into our home, they followed us 6,000 miles away. The Red Brigade showed them justice. The congressman's dead. Please get us the medication. It's simple. It's simple. There's no convulsions with it. It's just simple. Just please get it. Before it's too late, the GDF will be here. I tell you, get moving. Get moving. Get moving. Don't be afraid to die. If if these people land out here, they'll, they'll torture some of our children here. They'll torture our people. They'll torture our seniors. We cannot have this. Are you going to separate yourself from whoever shot the congressman? I don't know who shot him. At this point, a large steel barrel was rolled into the pavilion and placed at the front. Paper cups and syringes were also brought in and placed next to the barrel. The barrel then was filled with grape flavor aid. Larry Schott and various medical staff then began to measure out different liquids and pour them into the barrel of grape flavor aid. These liquids were valium, chloral hydrate, cyanide, and potassium chloride. Once stirred in, the bright purple liquid turned a dark brown. Even though these liquids were being poured in right before their eyes, most members were convinced that they were not actually poison and that this was just another loyalty test. They had gone through this and done this so many times that there was not much of an emotional reaction from the crowd. Everyone was then ordered to line up, as usual, 
and to come grab a cup and drink. Babies and children first, then the adults. Parents were instructed to keep their children calm. And according to an escaped temple member, Odell Rhodes, the first to take the poison was Rouletta Paul and her one-year-old infant. A syringe without a needle was fitted and used to squirt the poison into the infant's mouth, after which Rouletta then squirted another syringe into her own mouth. She then walked calmly to the field, as she had done many times before, and laid down. And as her child started to scream, she rocked him back and forth, trying to comfort him. Most mothers sat hesitant at first, but nurses came around gently persuading the mothers to give them their children. But when that didn't work, the armed guards came over to pry the children from their mother's arms. When the babies were poisoned, they quickly screamed in agony. However, the mothers were lied to and assured that the babies were only crying because of the bitterness of the drink. After the babies were all poisoned, the older children were next. Residents were still disillusioned, believing that this was just a routine white night drill. However, when a poisoned 16-year-old boy ran back inside of the pavilion and collapsed and started convulsing, the horror set in for most. Once members started begging for their lives, Jim Jones told them not to be afraid, that they were simply stepping over into another plane. He said, Stop these hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialists or communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. A 12-year-old girl refused to take her drink and kept spitting it up. So the nurses grabbed her by her hair, forced her mouth open, and poured the drink down her throat, then covered her mouth and nose to force her to swallow. When people started to say their goodbyes, Jim Jones ordered them to hurry up and made the guards force them away from one another to get a drink. Other members were in visible shock and almost trance-like when nurses would approach them and inject them with the poison. There were some who had enough sense to refuse to get in line, but the guards held them down while nurses forcibly injected them, Christine Miller being one. Jim Jones told them, Die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down your life with tears and agony. Survivor Stanley Clayton said, I ain't never used the term suicide. I ain't never gonna use the word suicide. That man was killing us. My wife came up to me. She had no tears in her eyes. She was just in a daze. My mother, my grandmother, my sister, my brother, all of them gone, she said. Just take me. Just take me and lay me down next to my grandmama. And she went up to the poison, to that death barrel, and she just didn't hesitate. She took it and drunk it and told me to hold her, to take her. And I did. And she died in my arms. Once I laid her down and she told me how she wanted to lay with her grandmother, I at that point knew I had no reason to be here no more. Jim continued on with his speech, through the cries and screams. He said, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to ten more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. The poison caused death within five minutes for children, less for babies, and an estimated 20 to 30 minutes for adults. Out in the field, Larry Schott would check each body with a stethoscope to make sure that they were dead and not faking. Jim's aides would drag the dead bodies into rows to make more room. They would purposely position the bodies on their stomachs so the others couldn't see their contorted faces, and they would pose them to look as if they were peacefully sleeping and cuddling one another. But eventually there were too many bodies and not enough space, so the aides started piling bodies on top of one another. As more temple members died, 
Eventually, the guards themselves were called in to die as well. As the number of those left alive diminished, Jim pressed his lips to the microphone and finished the death tape by saying, We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Jim Jones was found dead, lying next to his chair in the pavilion between two other bodies, his head cushioned by a pillow. A sign above his body read, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. His death was caused by a gunshot wound to his right temple that the coroner stated was consistent with being self-inflicted. Clearly, after witnessing hundreds of others suffocate, convulse, scream in agony and die, Jim Jones decided that that was not the death he wanted. Instead, he got to die instantly, without pain. After the news of the airstrip ambush reached Guyanese authorities, they sent a hundred soldiers to investigate. Plastic cups, flavor aid packets, and syringes, some with needles, some without, all littered the area where the bodies were found. When the FBI investigated Jonestown, they found hundreds of audio cassette tapes that had hours upon hours of recorded sermons, healings, phone conversations, radio communications, speeches, meetings, punishments, daily news, and hundreds of other events that allowed a clear story of Jonestown to form. This is when the FBI found what they labeled as Q042, or the death tape. Initially, it was believed that only half of the residents of Jonestown were dead, and the rest might have escaped. Search parties were even formed to sweep the jungle to look for them. However, upon closer examination, they realized that bodies were piled on top of one another. There were literally layers of bodies surrounding the pavilion. Soon the missing people were all accounted for. In total, 908 people were poisoned to death. 304 of those were children. Two days after the massacre, three Jonestown survivors returned to the commune to try to help identify the bodies. Afterwards, the bodies were collected by the United States military in Guyana after the Guyanese authorities refused the request to bury the dead in Jonestown. It took eight days for the American soldiers to place all of the victims in body bags. The bodies were then transported to the military cargo plane and sent back to the United States, the last shipment of bodies arriving early on the morning of November 27, 1978. The bodies were taken to the Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, where the base's mortuary was then tasked with fingerprinting, identifying, and processing the bodies who could not be identified by the Jonestown survivors. Only 631 people were able to be positively identified. The decomposition of the bodies and lack of photographs made it close to impossible to identify the rest. And out of the 631 bodies that were positively identified, barely half were claimed by their loved ones. Some were too poor to collect the remains of their relatives, while others were too ashamed. Jonestown was the single largest loss of U.S. civilian life not caused by a natural disaster up until the terrorist attacks of 9-11.
A total of 412 victims were buried in a mass grave in Evergreen Cemetery located in Oakland, California, and a memorial service is held there every year on November 18th. And in 2011, a memorial of them was erected at the ceremony, and a total of four plaques displayed all of the names of the victims of Jonestown, to the displeasure of some, even featured Jim Jones's name. The remains of Jim Jones and his wife, Marceline, were cremated, and their ashes were scattered over the Atlantic Ocean by their surviving children. Stephen, Jim Jr., and Tim Jones did not take part of the mass suicide because they were playing with the People's Temple basketball team against the Guyanese national team in Georgetown. At the time, Stephen and Tim were both 19, and Jim Jones Jr. was 18. Three days before the tragedy, Stephen Jones refused over radio to comply with an order by his father to return the team to Jonestown for Congressman Ryan's visit. Guyanese soldiers kept the Jones brothers under house arrest for five days, interrogating them about the deaths in Jonestown. Stephen Jones was accused of being involved in the Jonestown deaths and was placed in a Guyanese prison for three months. Jim Jones Jr. returned to the United States and was placed under police surveillance for several months while he lived with his older sister Suzanne and her husband Mike, who had previously turned against the temple. Stephen stated that he had originally avoided two attempts by his father to relocate him to the settlement. Eventually, though, he did move to Jonestown after a third attempt, and he said that he only gave in to his father's wishes to move because of his mother. Stephen Jones is now a businessman and married with three daughters, and appeared in a documentary, Jonestown, Paradise Lost, and has said he will not watch the documentary and has never grieved for his father. Jim Jones Jr., who lost his wife and unborn child at Jonestown, returned back to San Francisco. He eventually remarried and has three sons from that marriage. Tim Jones, who was adopted by Jim and Marceline, lost his biological family in Jonestown. Tim's biological family, the Tuppers, consisted of his three biological sisters, biological brother, and biological mother. Jim and Marceline's other children, Lou and Agnes Jones, both died at Jonestown. Agnes Jones, who was 35 years old, died along with her husband and her four children. Lou Jones, who was only 21 years old, died alongside his wife and son. John Stone was found poisoned in Jim Jones's cabin, and Jim John, another biological child of Jim Jones, and his mother, Carolyn Layton, both died during the events of Jonestown as well. After the massacre, impoverished Guyanese people looted Jonestown and took anything of value that they could find, including temple members' belongings. The Guyanese government used the site as a training facility for a short time, but eventually abandoned it. The farming equipment that was left in Jonestown was used to tear down its buildings, and now the site lay deserted, overtook by the vegetation of the jungle. Jonestown, as People's Temple knew it, no longer exists, and the attempts at memorializing the land has gone nowhere. Temple members who remained in the U.S. burned incriminating documents and recorded tapes before merging back into society. The $13 million worth of property, assets, and interests belonging to the temple were divided between the American government as payment for the retrieval and burial of the bodies, survivors and victims of the families of the airstrip attack, bill collectors and attorneys, and whatever left remained was divided amongst the Jonestown survivors. Years after the massacre, the media attacked the victims and survivors of Jonestown. They were called baby killers and murderers. However, that responsibility lays upon one man and one man only, Jim Jones. 
No one knows for sure what was going through the minds of the members of People's Temple that day, but it is apparent that a majority of people did not want to die and didn't want their friends or their families or their community members to die either. Many members were either forced to drink or forcibly injected, and many children had a decision made for them that was beyond their comprehension. And I will end this episode with a quote from Jim Jones's son, Stephen, who said, Ask yourself, what would someone have to tell you, or what would someone have to do to you to get you to do something that you couldn't possibly believe you were capable of? Examine that. Learn from it. Don't judge it. Don't stand separate from it. Be willing to stand in the shoes of the people you're judging. And I hope that the 900-plus people that died that day and the way that they died might offer us something so that their lives won't be in vain. And so that's it, guys. Usually our episodes kind of end on a happier note or more lively, but uh, I feel like it's kind of fucked up (laughs) to end that way on this episode. So uh, as per usual, if you have any stories, comments, questions, hit us up on our Facebook or Instagram or our email at thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us on your streaming app or whatever you listen to us on. And on that note, bye. Bye.